Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. The race for governor is tightening in the final month of the campaign, according to the Marquette Law School poll of likely voters. In the survey, which was conducted last week, Evers and Mickles... Sorry, I have... Rob, can I look on with you? Oh, I have yes. a technical issue <laughs> oh, here. Very good, yes. <laughs> um, Evers and Mickles appear to be tied. The same poll found that Ron Johnson has established a lead where he is favored by 52% of the likely voters and Mandela Barnes with 46%. This late surge by Johnson comes with a $21 million wave of attack ads against Barnes that are funded by the Wisconsin billionaires Diane Hendrick and Dick Uline. In mid-August, the results of the survey were exactly opposite, with Barnes leading with 52% and Johnson with 45%. By mid-September, the candidates were tied. The survey also found that both Democrats and Republicans indicated the same likelihood of voting in the November election. Well, if you think it's been getting easier to breathe recently, it's not just the pandemic waning. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources reports that most of the state, including the Dane County region, is now meeting national air quality standards. How about that? However, the counties along Lake Michigan, from Kenosha through Milwaukee, do not meet safe levels for ozone, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. While ozone is primarily a product of motor vehicle exhaust, many scientists believe that much of the ozone plaguing southeast Wisconsin, in addition to other pollutants, travels north from the metro Chicago area along the Lake Michigan shore. While cleaner electric cars will reduce ozone, warmer temperatures in the summer will increase the effect of what remains. The report also noted that two decades ago, virtually the entire state had levels of sulfur dioxide, lead, and other pollutants that exceeded federal standards. The State Public Service Commission denied a request from Wisconsin Utilities to hold off on a possible decision that would allow non-utilities to own and sell energy from solar collectors. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that two clean energy groups have asked the commission to declare that agreements between energy customers and solar companies outside of their regular utility company were legal under state law. The deadline for presenting evidence on the matter is December 1st. Two members of the PSC voted to maintain that deadline because the facts of the case had been under discussion for years. The Madison Forward Fund, a year-long guaranteed income program, has distributed the first of 12 monthly payments to low-income families. The program provides $500 directly to 155 households for 12 months. The families were randomly selected from a pool of more than 3,000 applicants. There are no strings attached to the payments, such as work requirements. The program's entirely funded by donations from individuals, but primarily through local foundations. No tax dollars will be distributed to the recipients. Over the next year, about $930,000 will be distributed overall. Throughout the year, participants will be surveyed to determine if their lives and well-being have changed. And for comparison purposes, a similar group that has not received funds will also be surveyed. Those are the headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. The tiny home campground on Dairy Drive was given the green light yesterday to continue operating through the end of next year. That comes as budget season heats up and the city of Madison decides its priorities for what gets funded in 2023. 
WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt has more. The Madison Common Council unanimously voted last night to extend services at the Dairy Drive Tiny Home Community through 2023. The Dairy Drive Tiny Home campsite was first set up last year as a safe and legal alternative to the city's temporary shelters for people experiencing homelessness. Jim O'Keefe is the city's Community Development Division Manager. He says that, so far, the campsite has been a success. They have run, they, the the uh, on-site service providers, have run some 50 people through that campground since it opened um, now almost a year ago, not quite a year ago. And 20 of them have exited to permanent housing, which is a pretty, a pretty good record. Um, it's a pretty good record in you know any any circumstances. But the the folks that that are utilizing the campground tend to be those, um, in many cases, who have shunned other shelter facilities or other kinds of services. So to get that kind of a of an outcome. Um, a, a 40% success rate in, in the first year is, um, I think, pretty notable. The tiny home campsite, which is operated by Mach 1 Health, was funded through federal COVID funding paid through the city. When it was first created last year, its lifespan was not specified, but as it was paid for with federal COVID money, it was not created to last forever. And while O'Keefe says the city has not had much contact with the residents of the campground themselves, he says that complaints heard from both Mach 1 Health and the surrounding community have been minimal. Last night's resolution provided additional federal funding for Dairy Drive through December 31, 2023. While O'Keefe says that it is too early to say if the project is successful enough for the city to want to keep it going after 2023, that is not their biggest concern. Another very serious challenge that will influence that decision will be how to pay for it. Because it's it's currently being supported now um, almost entirely through federal funding. Federal funding that's um, one-time money, and that is fairly rapidly being depleted. So we have enough funding to be able to commit to a second full year. The decision to extend the Dairy Drive community through 2023 comes as the city prepares to decide on their budget for next year. Yesterday, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway released her proposed 2023 operating budget. The operating budget covers the day-to-day expenses for the city, as opposed to the capital budget, which is more focused on creating projects. The capital budget was released by the city last month. The proposed 2023 operating budget comes out to almost $382 million, over $21 million more than last year's budget. The bump is due to several new one-time expenses, such as a cost-of-living bonus to be given to all city employees, and an increase in city revenues from things such as building permits and room taxes. The proposed operating budget looks to expand several programs around the city, including the CARES program. CARES, or Community Alternative Response Emergency Services, is a multi-agency program to dispatch crisis workers and paramedics to certain non-violent 911 calls instead of police. The program began last year operating out of Fire Station 3 on Willie Street. Earlier this year, it expanded to another location on the city's west side, allowing CARES to access more than just downtown. In the proposed 2023 operating budget, CARES would scale up even more, running seven days a week, up from five days a week, and operating 12 hours a day, up from eight hours a day.
While this means the city will most likely have to hire additional staff to run for these expanded hours, Mayor Rhodes-Conway says the city is still trying to figure out how much new staff they will need. Another facet of the 2023 operating budget is an expansion of programs for young adults throughout Madison. Mayor Rose Conway says that these programs, through organizations such as Urban League of Greater Madison and Operation Fresh Start, will help underserved youth get the step up they need to make Madison a better place. It's very important that you know we are investing in our community so that folks can go on not just to jobs but to good jobs, to family supporting jobs, and to be able to build wealth in their future which just creates more wealth in our community and more opportunities for people in our community. The programs funded in the operating budget would be focused on young adults ages 18 through 26, targeting BIPOC, LGBTQ, and low-income youth. The proposed operating budget also aims to make Madison more climate resilient. This would be done through a new city emergency manager. Mayor Rhodes-Conway says that this new position would work within the city's fire department to coordinate both throughout the city and with partners across the state to prepare and react to climate events. As climate change gets worse, we know that we are going to have more weather-related emergencies that we need to not only respond to, but really plan for and make sure that we have those plans in place to take care of both our infrastructure, but also most importantly, our people. Inflation has not spared the city's proposed operating budget, as almost every department throughout the city has seen an increase in budget. But through the use of federal funds, Mayor Rhodes-Conway says that this year's budget was much easier to balance than in past years. But the ease of balancing the budget won't last forever as federal COVID dollars begin to dry up next year. Mayor Rhodes-Conway says that the city is preparing now for the tough choices ahead. We project that next year there'll be probably about a $5 million gap, maybe a little bigger than that. Um, And then the years after that, we think that we'll be looking at between a $20 and $30 million gap between the cost to continue providing services to the city and what we're able to put onto the property tax levy. And that's because of the very extreme limitations that the Wisconsin State Legislature puts on municipalities in Wisconsin. The proposed 2023 operating budget now goes to the City Council for budget deliberations. The budget is expected to be finalized next month. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Back in June of this year, Wisconsin's Attorney General Josh Call filed a lawsuit challenging Wisconsin's ban on abortions. Call's lawsuit claims essentially that the 1858 law is too old to be enforced and that legislation passed in recent decades invalidates the ban. Now, medical providers are pointing out ripple effects of Wisconsin's abortion ban, including difficulties recruiting and retaining Wisconsin's OBGYN workforce. Our reporter, Andy Barrow, has more. Even if Call's challenge to Wisconsin's abortion ban is successful, it could take years to move through the legal process. In the meantime, the ambiguity around the law has left Wisconsin obstetricians, gynecologists, and other medical professionals unsure of whether they can treat patients without losing their license to practice medicine. The ban, which was first passed in 1849 and heavily revised to be much more restrictive in 1858, makes it illegal to perform an abortion unless the life of the mother is at risk. For help understanding what this means, I spoke to Dr. Wendy L. Molaska, president of the Wisconsin Medical Society. 
the state's largest and oldest physicians organization. Yesterday, she was part of a roundtable convened by Wisconsin Health News that outlined the ripple effects of the Supreme Court's stops decision and Wisconsin's abortion ban. One effect? Ambiguity for medical providers. The current statute from 1849 says the only thing that we can um, provide abortion care for is the life of a mother, not the health of a mother. And this is where it becomes complicated is where is that line? Who, who, makes, who makes the call as to when the woman's life is enough at risk versus when it's just her health that's at risk? And that's a big discrepancy that a lot of people don't understand that there is, you know, kind of, you know, this, this weird legal legalese of a health of a patient versus the life of a patient. So if she's only bled out, you know, one liter and her vital signs are still stable, is that okay? Because she's still, her life isn't at risk? Is it, do I have to wait until her vital signs become unstable that her life is at risk? Malpractice law requires doctors to provide a reasonable standard of care to their patients. A doctor who fails to provide abortion health care to a patient who needs it could be found to have committed malpractice by a civil court. However, if the state decides that the doctor acted too soon, they could be charged with a felony under the 1849 law. I'm either going to be criminally prosecuted for providing the standard of care to a patient, and if I'm criminally prosecuted, that doesn't go under malpractice. I need to get a criminal attorney. I, you know, am risking jail time. My license will be taken away because I'm now a felon. And then if I wait too long to take care of a patient and I don't meet the standard of care, then I risk a malpractice case. Um, So while we're not criminalizing patients, we're criminalizing physicians from providing a standard of care um, that's recognized. And so am I either going to lose my license because of a malpractice case or a criminal case? The rock and the hard place right now. A 2018 study found that Wisconsin already has a shortage of OBGYNs, particularly in rural areas. Malaska says the ban is likely to make this problem worse. Um, One of our concerns is that our medical students and residents um, won't get um, training that they need to be able to provide abortion care, um, which also overlaps with what people consider miscarriage um, care. Um, Because of that, um, and what we find is that residents who practice in a state tend to stay in a state. Um, If we are not attracting residents into our state because they're worried about the type of training that they'll get, um, we're also going to start worrying about being able to recruit OB-GYNs or keep OB-GYNs here in the state. She says that although it's legal to study abortion-related health care in Wisconsin, it may be illegal for medical students to get the hands-on training they need in the state. Um, So education around miscarriage, abortion, um, all the different techniques and stuff is in place. Um, But where it becomes a potential problem is for those residents who want to learn the techniques of um, being able to prescribe medications for ectopic pregnancies or miscarriages or abortions, um, learning how and getting enough procedures to be able to do um, DNCs, which are dilation and curatage, um, which are used for so many other things aside from just abortion. So if you're not getting the number of procedures to be able to feel confident to provide that medical procedure, you're not going to be able to provide it for many other procedures as well. Because fewer students are able to study reproductive medicine in the state, Malaska predicts it will become harder to meet Wisconsin's need for OBGYNs. One possible solution is having medical students train in Illinois and other states where the procedures are legal to perform. But this comes with a downside. 
right now, I, what it looks like is that um, residents and students are potentially looking at doing rotations out of state um, to try and be able to get um, the numbers of procedures that they need to feel confident. Um, and that provides a, a bigger hardship for them, right? Because now as a student and resident who doesn't get paid anything, um, you're having to set up travel, you're having to set up housing, um, you're having to set up, um, you know, these rotations where you're potentially away from your families and stuff um, to be able to get the training that you need. And that also affects recruitment of OBGYNs in Wisconsin because the state could be seen as a less attractive option for graduating doctors. The other interesting thing, if you look at it, is um, the majority of um, uh, graduating classes of residents for family medicine and, and obstetrics gynecology currently are majority female. And as you're coming out of residency and medical school, a lot of times you are a female of childbearing age. So one of the other things I think that physicians are going to be looking at is, hey, if I'm coming into a state where I might potentially be getting pregnant, is this a state that's going to support me with my reproductive health? The problem isn't just the number of OBGYNs in Wisconsin, though. Molaska says that the legal questions around the ban pose particular dangers to patients in rural communities because rural hospitals often lack the resources of larger medical centers. Also in the rural areas, when you have a patient who's bleeding and you don't know whether or not, you know, she's at that right point where we consider her life at danger or, you know, can you do this emergency procedure? Um, there are limited things such as um, blood transfusion. So at a rural hospital, you only have so much blood and it might not type out to your patient. So when you're trying to, to consider them bleeding, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, do I have their type of blood? Can I get that typed and crossed and get that into them? Um, and so it becomes a lot more dicey um, when any patient needs any kind of emergent care and especially OB care because it can go south very, very quickly. Molasco warned that the legal uncertainty surrounding Wisconsin's abortion ban could also affect access to medical care in urban areas of the state. And what we worry about as well is, um, like, we all just went through this pandemic where beds were scarce at hospitals, um, and we also have nursing shortages that we're worried about. So all of a sudden, if we're transferring a lot of our patients from the rural areas into Dane County, are we going to start worrying about bed availability again? Um, so it becomes a big, huge, um, you know, ripple effect um, um, that I don't think a lot of people really realize. Call's lawsuit is expected to be appealed to the Wisconsin Supreme Court over the next several months. The court currently has a 4-3 conservative majority, which could potentially flip following next year's election. Reporting for WORT, this is Andy Barrow. The time is now 6.23 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The Connecticut warbler is a notoriously sneaky bird, which makes tracking their populations difficult. But according to a recent population survey, the songbird's population here in Wisconsin has fallen dramatically, more than any other bird species in the past 25 years. Now the state DNR is teaming up with agencies across the state and the Midwest to try and save the disappearing habitats for the rare songbirds here in Wisconsin. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt spoke with Craig Thompson, conservation biologist with DNR, about the bird and the efforts to save them. 
And now I want to sort of get into uh, what's being done to sort of bring these birds back to Wisconsin. I want to get into that in, in a second here, but just to mm-hmm. just to sort of lay a little bit more groundwork. Uh, you mentioned and you said how their populations are pretty drastically decreasing here in Wisconsin. Uh, tell, tell me about that. Why, why is that happening? Well, it's, it's hard to know with a species that's the secretive. So Connecticut warbler is a ground-dwelling warbler. You know, a lot of warblers are treetop warblers, but this is a bird that's very, it's, we call it skulky. That means it's very secretive. And they're very hard to find. They're, you can see them on occasion. They're seen during migration, but because it's secretive and also a, a low-density bird, there just aren't a lot of them. If a birder or a biologist sees one during migration, it's a pretty big deal. It's noteworthy. And so it's one of the least well-studied birds in North America because its habitats are so inaccessible. Now, what we've deduced thus far, Nate, is that the species breeding habitats are largely intact, and so that points then to other problems. Now, this is considered to be a classic neotropical migrant, and what I mean by that is a neotropical migratory bird is a bird that spends the winter, Wisconsin's winter, well south of Wisconsin, typically somewhere in Latin America. So we know that this bird winters about 5,000 miles south of here in a portion of South America called the Gran, G-R-A-N, Chaco, C-H-A-C-O. And the Gran Chaco is the second largest biome in South America right after the Amazon forest. So it's an expansive area. It's about 250,000 square miles. And it's primarily dry forest. So there are pockets of wet savanna scattered across, but it's not like the wet, rainy Amazon. This is a much drier type of forest. And as a result of it being drier, it's more conducive to agriculture. And what we're seeing in the Gran Chaco, which is an important wintering area, not only for Connecticut's, but a variety of other species that also breed in North America, we're seeing wholesale habitat loss. And in fact, we're seeing habitat loss accelerating. And it's to the point now where at least 20% of the Gran Chaco has been completely deforested. And we're losing about a million acres. Gosh, it's at least a million acres a year. And it's probably going to be going up from there. It's just just mind-boggling what's going on down there in terms of habitat conversion for industrial agriculture, primarily for soy agriculture, soybeans, and then for cattle ranch expansion as well. And that's having an impact on all of our birds that winter in the Gran Chaco. But we think that that may be, and we're not positive about this, but we think that may be having a disproportionate impact on Connecticut warblers. And so now what, what is being done to bring these birds back to Wisconsin here? So what we're doing up in, so the, the, the last three birds we found were up in northwest, with three breeding pair, were up in northwest Wisconsin, and they're breeding in old stands of jack pine. So um, that means a jack pine that grows a little taller than, you know, than, than the younger jack pine. They're a tall jack pine, and they have generally under open stories surrounding them that fill in with ericaceous shrubs like blueberries, and the... Uh, the warblers really like that kind of cover, so they like those emerging jack pine and those native shrubs that provide cover underneath, and they forage in those and they breed in those. And so we're trying to expand the available hab- jack pine habitat for that bird adjacent to where we know the three birds are. 
were currently or were nesting last year. And if we're successful, then we'll get more birds that will show up and breed there. And we will, uh, I suspect, continue that kind of habitat management in order to try to create more suitable habitat for the species. And that's really all we can do at this point for sites that used to be occupied in central Wisconsin, in the big blocks of forest in central Wisconsin that are no longer occupied. If you don't have occupancy and the habitat is still there, and it is, you know, it's hard to know what to do in situations like that. We're probably just dealing with the aftermath of the precipitous decline in birds, which means there simply aren't as many birds around as there used to be. And so there are apparently suitable habitats that are remaining vacant, unfortunately. So that that's what we're doing in Wisconsin. And the other thing that's happening is in a week, there is going to be a, a Connecticut Warbler Conservation Summit that is going to include provinces or representatives from all the Canadian provinces that have this species breeding in them, as well as representatives from all three states that also support Connecticut warbler populations. And so there's an effort afoot to coordinate breeding range habitat management on behalf of the bird while we still have an opportunity to hang on to it. I've been talking with Craig Thompson, conservation biologist with the state DNR, about the decline in Connecticut warbler populations here in Wisconsin. Uh, Craig, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Yeah, you're very welcome. I appreciate your interest. Thank you for the opportunity. The time is now 6.34, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us for the second half. This week on Parks and Landmarks, feature contributor Sean Bull takes us up to the Wisconsin Dells for a kayak trip to Mirror Lake. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. Every longtime Wisconsinite has at least one childhood memory of the Wisconsin Dells. Maybe your family spent a weekend in a cabin, or maybe your 8th grade class took an end-of-the-year trip to Mount Olympus. No matter your family's financial situation, the Dells offers at least some fun for everyone. If you live around here long enough, you'll end up checking it out sooner or later. I first heard of the Dells before I even lived in Wisconsin. This is one of my oldest memories from when I was about five years old. I sat alone in darkness on the floor of my grandpa's den. He lived in a century-old farmhouse in the middle of Lower Michigan. Though the home didn't have safe drinking water or stairs acceptable to modern building codes, it did have one advantage over my parents' place in the Chicago suburbs. Satellite TV. As I introduced myself to the History Channel, a commercial came on. I remember a man in a canoe paddling away from the camera on a glassy, still lake. The setting sun painted the water and sky a fiery orange. All I could see were the silhouettes of distant trees and that of the singular man in his canoe. After a few seconds, two words faded onto the screen. Wisconsin Dells. At least, I think that's how it went. I can't find this commercial online. The next year, my family moved to Wisconsin, 
and I grew to know the Dells as a place where water is enjoyed from a tube rather than a canoe. Still, no trip to the Kalahari could completely erase the paddling man from my memory. I thought about him again recently, and I realized that commercial, if it was actually shot in the Dells, could only have been filmed in one place. The paddlers among you probably think this is obvious, but it only just hit me. That was totally Mirror Lake. Mirror Lake State Park is perhaps the biggest Wisconsin state park that I would ever feature on this show. What do I say at the top of every episode? I'm trying to highlight underrated places, and a park that receives over 300,000 visitors a year is hardly a hidden gem. But Mirror Lake backs right up to the Wisconsin Dells, and it's normal for their water parks to host over a million people each in the same time frame. Devil's Lake State Park, only 20 minutes away, clears 2 million people a year, easily. So, when compared to its neighbors, Mirror Lake seems underappreciated. This is really strange, as the park isn't lacking in amenities or things to do. Mirror Lake is named for the lake at its center, the first of two such artificial bodies of water created by dams on Dell Creek. Unlike its downstream sister, Lake Delton, Mirror Lake is hemmed in by cliffs and canyons of sandstone. These walls, which can be 30 feet high at times, squeeze the lake. There are more open sections, but some parts are no more than 20 yards wide. Other than giving the lake its shape, the walls and the trees they support block a lot of wind from reaching the water's surface. This means that big sections of the lake are completely still, resulting in a glassy, mirror-like surface. Conversely, the lake is also kept still to protect the sandstone walls. Motorboats are allowed, but to minimize erosion they keep to no-wake speeds. This all combines for water uniquely well-suited to paddlers, more so than maybe any other lake in the region. Why should someone from Madison bring their kayak to Mirror Lake? Well, honestly, a lot of the water around Madison isn't that great for paddling. The big lakes are filled with fast boats, and they can get choppy if there's any wind. Lake Wingra and Brittingham Bay are pretty good, but if you're even considering hauling your boat out of the city, you're probably bored with our smaller bodies of water. Mirror Lake may be narrow in parts, but it's nearly three miles long. There's so much to explore. Devil's Lake is the obvious choice for a nearer place to paddle, but the sightseeing from the water of Wisconsin's most popular park is a bit limited. Most of the shore of Devil's Lake is either a sand beach or a pile of giant boulders. The landscape is still beautiful, but it's distant. At Mirror Lake, you can paddle right up to the pockmarked sandstone cliffs, and the trees even kind of lean out to meet you. The nature from the water is so in your face in a way that's different from many state park lakes. If you don't have a boat, that's no problem. Dell's Water Sports operates a stand by the boat launch where they rent canoes, kayaks, paddle boards, and even gas-powered pontoon boats if you insist. There really is no better way to explore the heart of the park, but if you don't want to bother with a boat at all, there's a separate swim beach too. For those determined to keep themselves dry, Mirror Lake also sports miles and miles of trails. There's a loop loaded with informational signs, documenting a group of lakeside cabins lost to time. The forested acres south of the park office are set aside for mountain biking, 
In the winter, many of the other trails are groomed for cross-country skiing, and where that's not possible, snowshoes are permitted. One of my favorite year-round trails takes hikers up the cliffs, under a canopy of massive cedar trees. You cross a long bridge over a ravine, and if you timed it right, Ishnala Supper Club is right on the other side, ready to serve up old fashions. If this all sounds like too much to pack into one day, they have over 150 campsites, many with electricity available. I've found Mirror Lake works great as a base camp for a weekend in the Dells. Usually when I cover parks like this, I like to let my listeners know about any upcoming events the park happens to be hosting. There is one coming up this weekend. I'll link it in the online version of this story as usual, but its description on the DNR website is a bit vague. Based on my conversations with park staff and what I observed at the site, I'll attempt now to expand on that a bit. This Saturday, from 6 to 8 p.m., Mirror Lake will host its annual Halloween hike. As the sun sets, the forest will light up with the flames of dozens, maybe hundreds of tiki torches. Yes, Halloween is still a good two weeks away, but the weather for a night hike should be hopefully much better this weekend. Besides, I think the Halloween theme comes not so much from the timing as it does from the advertised mystery guest at the end of the trail. Could it be a witch? A werewolf? Someone your kids will actually be excited to see, like the minions? I can't actually say. I've never done this hike before. Participants will start from the beach and search the surrounding trails for clues to the mystery guest's identity. When they've collected all four, they can head to the amphitheater to see whether their hunch is correct. I don't know much more than that about the mechanics of the mystery, but I do know that there will be a bonfire and s'mores at the amphitheater. For some people, that's worth the price of admission by itself. Honestly, it's probably worth the price of admission to a lot of you, as that price is zero. The Halloween hike is free and open to all. Technically, you need a state parks admission sticker on your vehicle, but I don't know if they even check that at events like this. The hike itself is on trails the park designates as easy terrain, but the trails are unpaved and a little uneven, so they're not accessible to everybody. However, if you don't mind cutting straight to the end, the amphitheater has an ADA-compliant parking area, which makes for an easy entrance for just about everyone. As it gets dark, the torches will be spaced close enough to easily follow from one to the next. I don't suggest bringing a bunch of flashlights, as that could ruin the ambiance for yourself or other groups. However, bringing one might be wise, as I'm not sure all the bathrooms are lit at night. One last time, the Halloween hike and mystery guest will be held this Saturday, October 15th, from 6 to 8 p.m. at Mirror Lake State Park. You can find this information on the DNR's website or in the online version of this story at wortfm.org. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wartfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. 
And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, you can tell it's October by the rate at which the weather's been changing over the past couple of days. We hit 72 degrees yesterday in the early afternoon before a sudden surge of incoming moisture clouded us and beset us with sprinkly rains. By mid-evening, though, those showers had passed, and the rest of the night was almost summer-like, with strong southerly winds holding temperatures in the low 60s. We even had a crack of thunder or two with the next round of precipitation that came through the area around 3 a.m., produced by a region of modest instability up in the second mile above ground level. Then we had a lovely morning with the lifting skies for a while until the cold front blew through around 10 o'clock, and the final round of showers came in with some impressive wind at that and that took the temperatures back down into the upper 40s and then this afternoon the upper level jet curled into this storm from the southwest and produced downwelling and subsidence beneath it that cleared the skies again and jumped the temperatures again about 10 degrees but the jet was only so wide so back under the clouds we went later on as the mid layers of the atmosphere recooled and resaturated resaturated uh, we'll have slightly less variable weather going forward, but the Octoberish uh, streak is going to continue at least in the form of uh, the temperatures, which will be running a good 10 to 15 degrees below normal for the probably the five or uh, six days ahead of us yet. Uh, have a look at the water vapor image of North America that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening, and you'll see there how the goings-on in the upper troposphere over the past three days have set us up for what is now looking to be a rather a more extended cool-off than uh, what was in evidence anyway when I gave the forecast back on Monday morning. At the beginning of the sequence there, a rightward-turning upper trough can be seen moving eastward across Canada to our north, followed behind it by a modest upper trough that reaches uh, perhaps halfway south across British Columbia, at least until about the time that it clears British Columbia and reaches the plains of Alberta, after which it begins plowing suddenly southward down into Montana and Wyoming. That's basically uh, topography at work there with the cold air sliding quickly down the plains. With the southward flux of the upper trough then centered primarily to our west, coming down through the Missouri River Valley, the gyres of leftward spinning cold air that are going to circulate leftward into and out of its pit will be pretty much right over us rather than a little bit further east as it had looked on Monday. So after tonight's first dose of cold air and another which will be surging down into the trough on Saturday, it appears we'll also get at least a glancing blow from one final round that will come southward on Monday into Tuesday. Following that, though, there's been increasing indications on the longer-range modeling that a more zonal and much milder regime will be pressing eastward over us for the latter part of next week, so we'll see if that actually comes to pass as we go forward. But back to tonight, uh, increasing cloud cover will rotate northeastward around the pit of this incoming upper trough and keep skies cloudy over the coming few hours anyway before gradually breaking and clearing more. A uh, passing shower is also uh, possible during that time. Indeed, a north-south line of showers is currently passing through about eastern Dane County into Dodge and Jefferson and Rock counties. So look for that. It's only a dozen or two miles wide, so it should pass fairly quickly. Uh, temperatures will drop to the upper 30s later on on westerly winds up at 10 to 17 miles per hour. 
Tomorrow, cold air pouring southward over still warm autumn ground will uh, lift quickly with daytime heating to produce a deep cumuliform cloud cover. Uh, thickening probably into stratocumulus for at least periods of the day. That'll be especially true in the afternoon. A passing shower or two is not impossible also from some of the deeper cloud piles. And uh, given the proximity of the freeze level uh, close to ground above us, a mixed ice grain or two shouldn't be a surprise, especially in the northern parts of the listening area. Temperatures are going to languish in uh, just the mid-40s tomorrow on west and northwest winds up at uh, 10 to 20 miles per hour, fairly gusty also in the afternoon. We should see some clearing tomorrow night with temperatures dropping into the low 30s on backing and diminishing west-southwesterly winds coming down to 4 to 7 miles per hour. And Friday, high clouds should re-enter the skies from the west as uh, warmer air starts to work back briefly over us ahead of the second cold front. Uh, temperatures, though, will be stuck generally sub-50 on west-southwesterly winds up at 8 to 12 miles per hour. Uh, we may see some clearing again in the overnight as the winds veer more westerly, and temperatures will drop to the low 30s again. And Saturday will be uh, partly sunny. I'm not expecting a whole lot of sun, but at least with passing cloud cover, temperatures will be in the upper 40s to around 50. We'll be cooler again overnight and on Sunday with uh, cold front number two veering winds more northwesterly. So uh, mid to upper 40s on Sunday with another round of uh, diurnal stratocumulus fairly likely and possibly in another uh, shower as well. Uh, it's currently 53 degrees down here at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 42. Winds are out of the southwest at 7 miles per hour. Uh, broken overcast at about 9,000 feet. Some lower clouds above the station as well. And the barometer's at 29.61 inches of mercury. Uh, steady at the moment, but uh, uh, shortly to rise. It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to October 1962, when the University of Wisconsin had its worst disturbance in a decade and its most impressive civil rights protest to date, and celebrated a new president. Stu Levitan has the big Badger news from 60 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s October 1962, on Wisconsin. Madison's largest and most successful civil rights demonstration to date occurs on campus on October 4th, when about 1,400 sorority and fraternity members march silently in the rain from Langdon Street to Bascom Hall to protest various university human rights regulations, including a move to kick the Delta Gamma sorority off campus, because its national board suspended the Beloit chapter after it pledged a black student, Madison's Patricia Hamilton. The large Greek delegation delivers a petition against the proposed ouster to Dean of Students Leroy Luberg, who calls the demonstration, quote, one of the best organized and most orderly ever held on campus. Then they march down State Street and home to Langdon Street. 
It's a long way on heels, says Luberg, who would waive the 48-hour notice requirement to allow the march. But the Daily Cardinal is not as impressed, calling the march, quote, an unwise endeavor because its leaders were so obviously confused about its purpose that participants showed befuddlement. It's about this time that persons unknown phone in a death threat or two to editor Jeff Greenfield. Two days after the long, silent march of 1,400 students, 400 gather for a single moment of silence at the Lincoln Terrace, showing support for James Meredith's attempt to enroll in the University of Mississippi. Although the Cardinal finds this demonstration to be, quote, somewhat disorganized as students stood awkwardly in silence for a moment, its purpose was perfectly clear and thus, quote, much more effective. In late November, after Delta Gamma's national president finally gives written assurance that the sorority has no discriminatory restrictions and that all chapters are free to pledge women without regard to race, color, creed, or national origin, the Human Rights Committee rescinds its recommendations for ouster. Faculty and regents grudgingly agree to let the sorority stay. Beer bars, women's dorms, and warm moonlit nights make for a bad brew October 13th and 14th, the weekend of the big Badger football game with Notre Dame. On each night, about 3,000 young men go on panty raids that become near riots, the worst campus disturbances since the panty raid of May 1952, when police made 21 arrests. It starts at bar time, a quarter to one on Saturday morning. As the six beer bars in the lower three blocks of State Street empty and the suds-soaked crowd builds, the men's thoughts turn to co-eds, who've been forced to return to their rooms by the 12.30 curfew. The boys make their way to the new Allen Hall on the north corner of State and Francis Streets, calling for bras and panties. We want silk, the lusty fellows bellow, and several young women oblige, waving and dangling undergarments from their windows. Excitement builds. Soon, a car driving through the packed intersection knocks down a boy. Then a policeman clubs a student. Flying beer bottles break windows at the Madison Inn in Allen Hall before the mob moves on to Lowell Hall, where custodian Merlin Marty, cut by flying glass from a broken door, opens the fire hose to hold the students back. Things are now out of control. The mob blocks traffic all the way to Capitol Square, bouncing cars and cavorting in the intersections. Students throw cans and bottles, even rocks and stones, at the police. Seven are injured, including three policemen and a fireman. The police make 13 arrests, including the students who roll a parked car off the end of Lake Street and into the water, pushing it 30 feet from shore. Thankfully, the Notre Dame student sleeping in the Chevy's back seat wakes up in time to escape injury. Early Sunday morning, after quarterback Ron Vanderkellen and All-American end Pat Richter lead the Badgers to a 17-8 victory over the Irish, it starts again. But this time, police are ready, and 20 officers are on the scene by midnight. With their active use of billy clubs in the paddy wagon, property damage is down and arrests are up. 34 young men are taken away, mainly for getting in drunken, bloody brawls. On Monday afternoon, the Faculty Committee on Student Conduct summarily suspends 20 students, reinstating 15 of them the next day. A handful of students pay fines of $105, but almost all have their charges dismissed by a sympathetic judge, William Bensley. 
I can realize from my own experience in the past, he says, that this was a case of your being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Fred Harvey Harrington became president of the University of Wisconsin under tragic circumstances. President Conrad Elvium's sudden death from a heart attack on July 27th. Harrington, whom Elvium had named vice president when he took office in 1958, was in Kyoto, Japan at the time, teaching an American Studies seminar in the month before he moved to Honolulu as the new president of the University of Hawaii. He rushed home, and on July 29th, the region's executive committee made him acting president. Two days later, just after Elvium's simple graveside service at Forest Hill Cemetery, the full board agrees to make the appointment permanent, if only the Hawaii regions will release him from his contract. They do, and on August 6th, the full board unanimously confirms Harrington as the 14th president of the university. Now it's time for a proper inaugural, and on October 20th, the university throws the greatest statewide celebration since the dedication of the Armory Gymnasium in 1894. A full day's festivities capped by dinner for 1,200 at the Fieldhouse, with countless other dinners around the state, all linked by radio broadcasts to hear Harrington's inaugural address and the state's response from Governor Gaylord Nelson. Although the weekend also celebrates the centennial of the Morrill Land Grant Act, which was designed to foster education related to farming, Harrington says in his address that the university will now also seek to serve cities. And he predicts that 50,000 students will attend the combined campuses of the university by the end of the decade, double that by the end of the century. The Daily Cardinal praises the new president as a staunch supporter of free thought and calls him, quote, the ideal man to guide the UW into a future, it says, quote, may mark the beginning of a new golden age for the university. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, badgerific, listener-supported WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporter was Andy Barrow. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kateman was our on-air engineer. Nate Weggie helped produce the newscast. And Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.